Welcome to the Daedalus Workshop, episode six. We're in season one, reading a people's history of the United States, and we're doing chapter five, titled A Kind of Revolution. Uh, so we split this chapter into two episodes. Uh, this first episode is going to be about the Revolutionary War, and the second one is going to be about the Constitution. Uh, so this first episode half, um, like it kind of zooms through the Revolutionary War. We're going to touch on it, uh, but Zinn doesn't like linger. Uh, he's more concerned with the aftershocks of the Revolution and how those affected blacks, Indians, and poor whites. So we will follow his chapter like we always do. This is pretty exciting. Uh, you you want to tell people who you are? Yeah. My name's Jason. <laughs> and my name's Ethan. And we have swap roles. Uh, <clears throat> oh, one housekeeping thing. Uh, back in episode two, we thought we would be able to split it into episode two, chapter, like part one and part two. And since we know nothing about how uh, the posting of these podcasts works uh it didn't actually work that way so if you're keeping track at home and you're like wait a second it's chapter five wouldn't that be episode five what's going on um it doesn't matter you're on the next one and we're now calling it episode six because we still get to do whatever we want with that part yeah kind like, of. like usual we're playing a game with points don't matter yeah <laughs> Okay, so let's start with a few shots from Zinn's opening salvo. Quote, The American victory over the British Army was made possible by the existence of an already armed people. Just about every white male had a gun and could shoot. The revolutionary leadership distrusted the mobs of poor, but they knew the revolution had no appeal to slaves and Indians. They would have to woo the armed white population. This was not easy. Yes, mechanics and sailors, some others, were incensed against the British, but general enthusiasm for the war was not strong. While much of the white male population went into military service at one time or another during the war, only a small fraction stayed. John Shy, in his study of the Revolutionary Army, called A People Numerous and Armed, says they grew weary of being bullied by local committees of ragged strangers with guns in their hands, calling themselves soldiers of the revolution. Shy estimates that perhaps a fifth of the population was actively treasonous. John Adams had estimated a third opposed, a third in support, a third neutral, end quote. You know what's funny is that almost perfectly matches um, our political layout, uh, field today where people land. It's about a third. Like you have actual declared Republicans, actual declared Democrats, and then independents. And I think it's about a third, a third, a third. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that matches like most things just everywhere where like a third goes one way, a third goes another way, and a third are waiting to see which way is better and then will follow one third of the other third. And it seems more, if that's the case, then maybe it's more ingrained in just how systems, hierarchies, evolutionary events fall. Um, where you're never going to get clear delineation, like a full one half and a full one half. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I know that you're always going to have, uh, multiple opinions. You're <laughs> not going to have just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to mention this for, uh, th for some of these founding fathers, it sounded like they were pretty frustrated that people 
didn't see how awesome uh, this revolution was going to go for them. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, um, who was an aide of George Washington at the time, um, he wrote from headquarters, from Washington's headquarters, our countrymen have all the folly of the ass and all the passiveness of the sheep. They are determined not to be free. If we are saved, France and Spain must save us. So I think we know which third he was on. Yeah, I mean, but like at the same time, for the people, if like you have this new life in this new world and like it's going all right, like, I mean, war is not like a fun thing right. to get into. Yeah. So it's interesting because I feel like, mm, I feel like from, from the majority of my life, I kind of always imagined that like everyone was gung ho. During the revolution. Yeah. So I guess yeah. even the idea that like. Pipes and drums and banners. and Yeah. So even yeah. just from like John Adams, a third, a third, a third. Even if you go, you know, let's say the, and I don't know, if you go the whole third that was neutral, if, if that whole entire third went along with the revolution, so it was two thirds and one third. Yeah. Even there being like a third that was like, nah, that was a little bit like, oh, I like never really, like I just never thought about that. Yeah. So that was interesting to me to um, toss around in my brain a little bit. Yeah. And it's hard, obviously it's hard to know if this is, um, would hold up to any sort of actual analysis, right? Maybe it was just his kind of his general feeling of the time and you know, he, he laid that down. <clears throat> but I was thinking, is it fair to say that, that great leaps forward, some new advanced technology or societies, um, rarely require or even involve majority consensus, let alone plurality. Um, sometimes it just takes, it takes a cause that at its heart is maybe just or, or smarts or good, um, championed by zealots to kind of win over the masses. Right. Yeah. So anything that happens, it's new. I mean, there has to be like the, the zealot or like in marketing, you'd call it like the brand evangelist, yep. your buddy who's got an apple everything mm-hmm. and tells you that you need to get an apple everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it requires a zealot, a brand evangelist. Um, the great leap forward. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like majority consensus, I mean, how many, th- like, I mean, I, there's gotta be some kind of majority, right? You gotta have like the, the 51% to, to, to well, push it, forward. <laughs> yeah. I guess if we, if we get stuck on um, the, the vote, but even in that, you need you technically only need fifty one percent of people who are going to vote for something. That's because there's yeah. always the you know there's always the people who abstain. Yeah, um, so th- th- there probably are a lot of like, <laughs> I think the conspiracy theorist crowd calls them like sheeple. <laughs> I mean, I think there's I think there's some truth to that. There's a lot of people who just like, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Even they just want to like live their lives. They're just like, listen, like I'm just out here living and like it's fine and like, yeah, y- y'all go make the decisions and I'm just gonna like keep doing what I do and unless something like comes into my daily life I'm I'm good I think it, I think the daily life gets way less interrupted yeah than most people think I think most people can just live their daily lives and ignore most of the noise out there and be fine yeah I mean just think about how busy uh, any even in the modern world even in history just you get in your daily life just waking up brushing your teeth Going to the bathroom, finding food breakfast, to eat. finding food. Yeah. Um, so then to to also have to, you know, take up a, a cause 
um, fight for freedom or whatever, even just going that extra step, like let's say in your job to, to push harder, to earn a promotion. So you got to do your job plus to show that, yeah, you're ready for the next level or Or volunteering for a cause. I mean, like Mm -hmm. there have been periods in my life where I volunteered for things, but I'm not volunteering for anything right now. Like, yeah. And some people go out of their way to like volunteer and they're super passionate. And like, I think that's super respectable. Yeah. And those, those, um, that zealotry exists in with every cause. And sometimes it is the most admirable thing. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think finding something that you're passionate about, like, I think that's one of the main things that kind of gives your life meaning beyond just the daily grind. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, okay. So let's keep going here. So, if you haven't got the picture yet, these like past five chapters, Zinn views just about everything through the lens of class or class conflict or power relations or control. Uh, whether or not everything revolves around these things, that's for you to decide. Uh, but if we were to talk about how class and power factored into revolutionary America, quote, revolutionary America may have been a middle class society happier and more prosperous than any other in its time. But it contained a large and growing number of fairly poor people, and many of them did much of the actual fighting and suffering between 1775 and 1783, a very old story. The military conflict itself, by dominating everything in its time, diminished other issues, made people choose sides in the one contest that was publicly important, forced people onto the side of the revolution whose interest in independence was not at all obvious. Ruling elites seem to have learned through the generations, consciously or not, that war makes them more secure against internal trouble. End quote. It's so funny to hear some um, hundreds of years ago the conscious unconscious of war being used to keep the, the masses in line. That I want to know who the first person was to make that argument, put it in print or put it out there. That is now just com- like was it was it during the the time of the Persians? It, was it <laughs> the Roman Empire, um, Middle Ages? Uh, I'm I'm going like when were we jaded enough as a as a species? I'm going early like Babylonian. Babylonians, yeah, yeah, like Ur. <laughs> like, listen, we got a lot of people. Like, they got enough food. They're getting bored. They're getting restless. Let's let's go fight. Yeah, and some some cupbearer over in the corner hears that, and that kicks off. Writes one it down of those, in cuneiform. Yeah, yeah, one of those great conspiracy theories that has apparently always existed. I will say though, there's an interesting um, unity that comes about as a byproduct of external threats, war, conflict. Um, if you remember, after nine eleven, kind of like the the, um, what's the word I'm like the felt very unified. There's like, there were a lot of American flags, a lot of American flags, more patriotic fervor than maybe now I I was 13 years old. So, um, some of this might be kind of just from hearing other stories of the time. I don't know how much I remember, but, um, likening that now to 2020, we have this, I don't know if you call it an external threat, but a threat for sure 
in the in COVID and the coronavirus. The idea of a global pandemic <clears throat> is absolutely a threat. Yeah. But I feel there's stark contrast to what I also see as great disunity. Um, and maybe it's just because we're in an election year. Because 9-11 happened in 2001, so after an election well, year. Well, you, you, can't, you can't fist fight a disease. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> and so there's, 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 you, you also, um, probably more than fist fight, uh, I would say you can't scapegoat a disease. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about being able to say like, those people over there, they're the baddies. And all of us in this geographical area, we're the goodies. Yeah. Let's go get them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can, then you can go and you can get them. Did you ever see, shoot, what was it called? Uh, it had Boromir, Sean, uh. Lord of the Rings with Boromir? Yeah, yeah, I saw Lord of the Rings. No, 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 no. The the actor uh, who played Boromir, uh, Sean, uh, Sean, I don't know, Sean Bean? No, whatever his yeah. name is. He plays um, like a crusader, ends up in a village, uh, gets Black Death. Um, it was put out by, I think, Magnet was the production house. Um, it's not ringing a bell. Well, now I'm going to do a horrible analogy related to that. Anyways... I'm pretty sure in the movie, if I remember right, um, this this village that doesn't allow outsiders in, um, basically, I think views the Black Death effectively as like witchcraft. Sure. Right. So there's all this. Um, so yeah, a pandemic. Maybe it just makes you. Uh, it sows disunity because it feels more like witchcraft, like you were saying. Less you can't just be like, "There's a bad guy." Well, th- uh, yeah, and there's also, like, there is a threat, and so, like, humans generally need a scapegoat, mm-hmm. and um, there's no, like, external force. And the people tried with China and worked a little bit, yeah. but it's also hard when, like, lots of people in China are also dying. It's not as clear-cut. And so you just need a clear-cut scapegoat. And so in America, then, it just became whatever side you're on, it's the other political side. Other political side, yeah, whoever's <clears throat> in charge if you don't like them and... If you do like them, the numbers are great. If you don't, uh, the they're doing a great job. If you don't like them, they're doing a terrible job. And and at the same time, it's like if you don't scapegoat, then you have to like face the reality that disease can come from anywhere at any time and yeah. kill yeah. people. And it's random. And yeah. for a lot of people, that's far more terrifying option than. Do you think aligning um, aligning your fear of a threat with your policies? Uh, suggest that like it's it's that need for control like it becomes part of our, our political conversation here because whoever we support if we believe their policies will get this virus under control that suggests that policies can somehow affect the outcome of a virus right like yeah here's here's the thing that I've been thinking most about I, we're a little bit in modern times but that's fine um, and I haven't heard anybody say this yeah. So let me know if you've heard this, but like both the left and the right are convinced that like their plan is going to work and that they are going to defeat the global pandemic. And I'm going like, well, maybe that's just like a little like human arrogance. Like what if yeah. like, yeah, I'm with, yeah. What if it's, this is just going to be what it is? Yeah. Like there doesn't necessarily have to be a defeat in the way it was like, if you and I were in a, a fist fight, one of us is going to win. Right. Possibly we both get heart attacks at the same exact time. <laughs> right, right. Uh, stepbrother style, knock each other out at yeah, the same yeah, time. Yeah. Clubs like, and whatnot. There's yeah. usually a winner and a loser. Right. With like viruses, it's not necessarily a winner and a loser. 
just like a new landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something will happen and it will come to an end, but is it because of a specific policy? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but back to that Zim quote, what I thought was like really interesting, also, I thought it was um, both an honest and passionate way to frame it. Um, he says, revolutionary America may have been a middle-class society happier and more prosperous, prosperous than any other in its time. So he puts like a little bit of like, well, maybe. Yeah. Because, of course, he's trying to argue for something else. Mm-hmm. But he's also not like discounting the possibility. So I like that it was like, here's potentially an honest, here's a factor. But also, like, I don't really think that... Um, but like I thought that was a really important sentence for him to say like happier and more prosperous <laughs> than any other in his time. Which is a pretty big deal yeah. to lay aside his other arguments. Is that these things were happening over here and it also may have been yeah. the happiest and most prosperous at the time. If it's big enough that he that even he, he can't ignore it, um, that's got to be something there. He also mentions, though, there's a growing number of fairly poor people. I don't, from everything we've been reading in this in this book, like everyone was poor or super wealthy. So how is there growing poor? Were things better a few years before? I'm, this like messed with me when it comes to, I, and it's probably a modern sensibility that like economic growth just, it just keeps going because you know, our whole lives, like, yeah, there's recessions and stuff, but effectively, like, things get better and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wonder if the growing poor people were people coming on boats. Coming on boats or, yeah, being forced into the city from the rural areas. I don't know. Not rural, but, like. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, he doesn't go <clears throat> super, super into where the growing poor are coming from. And that is, again appreciative that he doesn't do all like the the super academic like all these like citations in as you're reading so it makes it a comfortable read but every once in a while it's like i'd like to know where that came from you want more want more yeah but uh well you're you're, you're about to want a whole lot more because in one paragraph we're going to cover the whole revolutionary war quote the americans lost the first battles of the war bunker hill Brooklyn Heights, Harlem Heights, the Deep South. They won small battles at Trenton and Princeton, and then, in a turning point, a big battle at Saratoga, New York, in 1777. Washington's frozen army hung on at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, while Benjamin Franklin negotiated an alliance with the French monarchy, which was anxious for revenge on England. The war turned to the South, where the British won victory after victory, until the Americans, aided by a large French army, with the French Navy blocking off the British from supplies and reinforcements, won the final victory of the war at Yorktown, Virginia in 1781, So we're both a fan of um, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Oh, yeah. So to, to be able to sum up the entire Revolutionary War in a paragraph rather than multiple six-hour-long podcasts um, left me wanting a bit more about what happened. I suspect I had a a history professor and we covered this history class covered revolutionary war to present. 
when we got to World War II, front the professor standing at the front of the class said, yeah, this is like 80% of what's on the History Channel, so we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> and moved on to the next event. That's funny. <laughs> Just completely skipped it. Yeah. So and you were like, yo, dude, like I'm not a 60 <laughs> year old man. I don't watch the history channel. Yeah. Like I'm over here watching like Nickelodeon and like cat dog and it was Master's laboratory. Come well, on, man. It was also one of the reasons I took that class. It was like, all right, we get revolutionary war, get civil war, get world war one, get world war two. This is gonna be great. I'm going to actually wars. enjoy it. Yeah. Nope. Skipped Boop. right over it. Um, I wonder if that's, if Zen would feel that that is covered at such great length. Um, and it's not the, it's not the lens that he is telling American history through the history yeah. of the United States. No, de so. Yeah, definitely not. I think we should pull one thing out though. It was immediately preceding this quote, um, at the bottom of page 79. Um, there's like an interesting note that he puts in there on the discipline of Washington's army. Um, so now I'm reading from the book, uh, Quote, a chaplain in Concord, Massachusetts wrote, new lords, new laws. The strictest government is taking place and great distinction is made between officers and men. Everyone is made to know his place and keep it or be immediately tied up and receive not one, but 30 or 40 lashes, end quote. Um, and then the quote you read picks up from there. <clears throat> so uh, it fits in with Zinn's motif of kind of like class and distinction and, and how the lower rungs always get more severe treatment than the upper rungs. But I think like this little tidbit might exist in any number of history books focusing on the revolutionary war. Um, and my guess would be as kind of a, 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 a praising example of Washington instilling like strict military discipline into his troops, into this new revolutionary army. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this exact example shows up in this book uh, from Howard Zinn as kind of like the distances between officers and men. Yeah, and I would say like probably both are true. Like there, there is a distance between the officers and the men and it does require great discipline mm -hmm. to have a disciplined army where people continue to fight even when they don't want to fight anymore mm -hmm. to win because war is long and brutal. Mm -hmm. And I would have been, I came up being raised where the idea of, you know, 30 to 40 lashes for not cleaning your bunk out properly was effectively like admirable because you would never, how I was raised is you would never have to suffer those consequences because you would follow orders. So it was like, a, but it, that quote now put in, in the light of, of how Zinn is um, portraying history, it feels very different. Sure. I mean, to me, it's like, I always just try to make it like personal. Like, would I be okay with whipping somebody 30 or 40 times? <laughs> and I, uh, my answer, I, I don't know that we're going to find an instance where I'm going to be like, yeah, I'd be cool with that. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> Uh, now if it was like, I got to whip this person 30, 40 times or, um, an entire nation of, of people suffer, um, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's another example of kind of Washington's leadership on, uh, page 81. Uh, 
where there was a kind of a mutiny. So Zinn does lay out rather than talking about the what happened, the events of the Revolutionary War. Um, he talks about some of the mutinies that took place, and in one of them, Washington has to not just kind of like suddenly marshal forces to respond, but he also um, argues for, I believe, like um, better pay, better benefits to to the common soldier. So improving conditions for the common soldier. Mm. So he reacts in a way that I think a leader would still ex- has ex- expectations that don't go away, but grants some some improvement, um, listens to his men effectively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was another mutiny that he was ready for and they were kind of able to just like stomp it out real quick. But even at the end of that, uh, a peace was negoti- negotiated. Um, half of the men were discharged and half got furloughs, which I think means they were still serving, but they would, they just got like vacation. If I understood it correctly. Believe so. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, obviously a few got shot and hung like the leaders thereof, which would be, I think common practice in any military setting. Yeah. Um, so not outside of it, but um, just these interesting little, again, focusing on the, the core of this book being, being told from the perspective of like the downtrodden, the forgotten, the losers, um, focusing on that gap that exists, as you point out that it's, he really hammers us over the head with, the benefits to being an elite and the bummers of being not. Yeah. Being poor kind of sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Like, I'll be honest. I didn't really realize like France's role in the whole thing. I didn't realize it kind of swooped in, in the end. were like key players. That was, that was, that was news to me. Yeah. Uh, to be, I'm sure we both learned that it's one of those things, right? Yeah. But it, like it's, it, coming back it's like feels new or maybe not maybe maybe history is really ooh rah rah usa usa it, well i always kind of thought that it was like the colonists did it on their own they didn't have any help from anybody fighting from behind trees not standing in lines like a bunch of dummies yeah so it's interesting that like because and i don't know the way he phrased it, it seemed like if france hadn't shown up it's there was a, a likely different outcome mm-hmm. of the revolutionary war mm-hmm. but we wouldn't be calling it the revolutionary war I don't know what we'd call it, but the great uh, colonial mutiny. Yeah, seventeen seventy six. Um, yeah. So now we've covered the entire Revolutionary War in great detail. <laughs> uh, what does Zinn see as the after effects of the revolution? You ask. Well, here's a couple combined quotes. Uh, these are from pages eighty four and eighty five. Quote. One would look in examining the revolutionaries' revolution's effect on class relations at what happened to land confiscated from fleeing loyalists. It was dis... Sorry, let me, let me uh, retake that. Uh, at what happened to land confiscated from fleeing loyalists. It was distributed in such a way as to give a double opportunity to the revolutionary leaders to enrich themselves and their friends and to parcel out some land to small farmers to create a broad base of support for the new government. Indeed, this became characteristic of the new nation, finding itself possessed of enormous wealth. It could create the richest ruling class in history and still have enough for the middle classes to act as a buffer between the rich and the dispossessed. Although the numbers of independent farmers grew, according to Roland Berthoff and John Murren, 
the class structure did not change radically. Carl Degler says from Out of Our Past, no new social class came to power through the door of the American Revolution. The men who engineered the revolt were largely members of the colonial ruling class. George Washington was the richest man in America. John Han Hancock was a prosperous Boston merchant. Benjamin Franklin was a wealthy printer, and so on. On the other hand, town mechanics, laborers, and seamen, as well as small farmers, were swept into the people by the rhetoric of the revolution, by the camaraderie of military service, by the distribution of some land. Thus was created a substantial body of support, a national consensus, something that, even with the exclusion of ignored and oppressed people, could be called America. End quote. It was a long breath. Yeah, and then I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, something about... All right. I don't think I care that a new class didn't spring up in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. If I'm understanding class correctly, that uh, bears some amount of power or sway in the ruling realm, so in, in government, has some uh, modicum of wealth that leads to them being able to have decisions and power over business and, and commerce and, like, sway within the area. Um, I, don't, I don't know how that, after something as disruptive as uh, a revolution and the founding of a new country, that you could fairly expect to all of a sudden, oh, and, by, and we also fixed the class system. Okay, so let me start by asking this. Um, so first said you didn't really care, and you ended with, oh, we also fixed the class system. Do you think sure. the class system needed to be fixed, or do you think the questions in his asking here of uh, should the revolution have resulted in new classes, you're just not interested in that question? I, I, it's probably the second, right? So I don't know if the class system needed to be fixed. Again, I don't know if it is an, uh, the result of a broken system, broken people, or just the result of human hierarchies that will always exist no matter what you try to do. Um, it's more uh, if there was an expectation that for a revolution um, that is built around the freedom of the individual and the freedom of a new nation, uh, for that to carry merit, it should also result in some new kind of class. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. My, and that I would disagree with. Because it takes time. My guess is that through Zinn's lens, um, the goal of revolution is uh, class restructuring. Mm. So, like, why would you have a revolution and not restructure classes? Like that. That's that's silly. That would. That's an interesting perspective that I did not consider. Yeah, like I mean, a, yeah, because I, I don't consider that the goal, right? And my my goal is more, yeah, leave me alone, uh, win independence, win revolution, so that way I get left alone. Yeah. Um, okay. So so let me let me ask this then, um, somewhere in between those two those yeah. two thoughts. Um, so the idea of like being left alone, d does that does it seem fair to say that it also means that there's no one above you anymore? Oh, that's, I, I don't know. Because it, it seems to me like as the colonists are mm -hmm. on the eastern seaboard and Britain's over there, yeah. to be left alone also means 
not having to well, pay taxes to, the, to, to Brynn anymore. Sure. So th- there are people who are above you who you, yeah, who have the power over you, and the revolution then results in those people, in this one, being removed completely off the table. Yeah, maybe I'm wrapping up Left Alone uh, in, in the wrapper of No Taxation Without Representation. Because, um, yeah, obviously, e- even if you throw off the shackles of Britain, like they still had to pay taxes. They just had a new government. And new leaders that but so, okay so here's a, okay here's a, here's a question here's a question uh, <laughs> is it obvious to say that uh, when they removed Britain they still had to pay taxes I um okay maybe not obvious like uh, did that not, did that well I'm I'm just asking that person like did yeah. they have to keep paying taxes like is that the only system that that could have been so I don't even know if if it's how it was after yeah, I, yeah. I assume I don't, it was. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I assume it was, but um, is that it's not the only system because because uh, governments could primarily raise funds via um, like controlling the ports, um, so import export, levying sure. fees and tariffs and, and transports that way, and kind of not taxing the actual commerce of their citizens. Um, I guess I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know sure. what uh, how they made their money after England was beat. And so I think um, I think it was interesting to see that like there were a bunch of independent farmers. So he doesn't call that a new class, but he does note that this new thing was happening. Do you remember? I think it was uh, when we were talking about Bacon's Rebellion mm-hmm. and some of the rebellions that came out, and that the the farmers, like these same independent farmers who were leasing land, they were being harassed by these rebellions because the landlords, the distant landlords, they couldn't go after them directly. One side note, uh, my dumb brain, I thought it was like the the farmers in Albany and the landlords in New York City. No, it's landlords in Great Britain, like across the sea who own it, like actual lords and stuff. Sure. So, yes, not a couple days carriage ride away. Um, but there's enough of, of those independent farmers to, like, they had to have been a significant segment of the nation at that point. Like, we were an agrarian society still. Like, that was Jefferson's big thing. He thought farming was going to take us to the future forever. Mm. And that... Um, propping up like the farmer and giving more um, protections and guarantees to farming and agriculture was how we became, how we would truly become independent and and wealthy as a nation. Yeah. 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 It's um, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting with the independent farmers and you have what Zinn would call sort of the colonial ruling class. And then you have sort of his broad category of poor whites, Indians, black slaves. Mm -hmm. And if, like you said, his his view of revolution, revolution leads to a restructuring of the class. Do or that's you, the goal of revolution. Like maybe it has, yeah. yeah. If it's the goal, um, what do you have any sense of what that looks like? Because that's one thing where I'm totally lost, where I'm reading Zinn, right? If, there's, if it's not good to have, <clears throat> if uh, these ruling elites uh, who are also kind of leading this revolution... And then there's a lot of poor people, and that's not a good structure. What is a good structure? 
Is it is it having uh, guys like Bacon lead the revolution? Um, but I mean, we have so many examples in histories where revolutionaries are very good at revolution, but they're not good at governing afterwards. They'll, they can set things on fire and they can burn it down, but then they don't know what to do after that. So I would argue that we were kind of lucky that the guys leading the the revolution in the United States were also like men of thoughtfulness and enlightenment and had ideas and actually how to rule in a peaceful way afterwards. I don't know. Yeah. And there, I mean, there was a ton of philosophy surrounding this whole time where a lot of it was applied from a lot of applied from Locke and Descartes and others. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, in terms of coming in season four, no, <laughs> I, I assume, although I don't have anything to go off of, I'm assuming that um, that Zinn's a fan of Marx. He's got to be. Um, so I would almost like appreciate if he just laid out like what he thinks is is a better option, because he's commenting that this yeah, this isn't really da da da, but yeah. he never lays forward like, and here's a better option forward. I think we'll see it at some point in this book. And he's going I, I kind of have my fingers crossed because that's what that's what I want to like. That's yeah. what I'm most interested in talking about is like alternative solutions and looking at those and then pulling yeah. those apart and thinking about. Um, I'm, I'm kind of nervous to get to the end. And it's, and it's, <laughs> it's just not gonna be there. Yeah, it's just well, gonna be commenting on what happened through a sort of like what I assume is a Marxist lens yeah. on Zin's behalf. Is it fair to say that from a narrative structure, you don't hammer the same point over and over again unless you're building to. Like your your argument, your your actual, your big like, and here's how we should do it type thing. I hope so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would not write an entire book like that. I yeah. mean, at the same time, uh, if that's what he does, I'll give him props if all he's doing is just saying, here are the people who were forgotten mm -hmm. and downtrodden, et cetera, and doesn't even like lay on top of like, if he doesn't even just use people just to be like, the momentum for a theory. Yeah. If he's just saying, no, these are the people and, and their stories are valuable enough. Yeah. I can give props to that. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's keep going then on this next section. Uh, so Zen pivots now to talk about the effects uh, the revolution had on the Indians. Essentially, the Indians had sided with the French against the British before the revolution. Then they sided with the British during the revolution, due in part to the British effort resulting in the proclamation of 1763, which established a line at the Appalachians that the colonists were not supposed to cross. Side note, check this out, quote, the original Virginia charter said its land went westward to the ocean, end quote. So post-revolution, uh, the Indians were kind of on their own. <laughs> uh, Virginia needs to chill a little bit. Come on, guys. That's like a pretty aggressive <laughs> statement. Yeah. And the first thing I thought was like, did anybody make it to the ocean? When did Lewis and Clark? I have no idea. I don't trip? know. I got no clue. Uh, Google it. This is going to be the first, uh, first live, live Google. Googling. Cause like, here's the, the thing. So, uh, imagine that nobody even made it. They just went, well, we crossed an ocean. So there's gotta be an ocean over there. <laughs> so however far that is, it's all ours. Just straight West. 1803. 1803. What? So the proclamation, which was the Appalachians, was 1763. 
So was, yeah, I it was had to have just thinking, been an assumption. Like, and I don't know where that don't Virginia don't quote, what time frame that quote gets pulled from. That could be pulled from um, a separate, I, I don't know. Yeah. But I was kind of wondering like if they just wrote that in, like just like hedge their bets. Like before anybody <laughs> yeah. else claims the land west of yeah. our northern and southern. Yeah, because we got to the top of the mountains. We saw there's more. So we get it all until you run into an ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, a little insane. It's like a lot yeah. insane. This okay. This is one thing. Er, w- earlier, we were talking about um, the richest ruling class the world had ever seen, right? And now we're talking about how Virginia had claimed all of the land west of the Appalachians to the next ocean. Maybe they knew about it and everything. I don't know. Until you hit an ocean, it's ours. That basically, like, a lot. I think I don't know how they measure wealth at this time. But if land is part of it, uh, pig snouts, pig snouts, yeah. If land is and sheep tails, yeah. Ah, excellent. <laughs> but well, okay. What I'm saying is, if land is and part the middle of middle digit of the chicken's <laughs> okay. third toe. Okay, perfect. No, but if land is part of it, um, was it uh, was it that valuable? Were huge tracts of land that, without knowing what was there and what you could do with it? Were they that valuable? Uh, no, because there were other people there with bows and arrows that wanted to kill you. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of value in that. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I no, I think I think land was valuable. Yeah. Well, land is valuable, and we understand it today. But if there isn't a road, if there isn't a port, if there isn't established farms, if it's untamed wilderness, and and these these lords are being granted, maybe that's why the land grants were so massive, because. They felt they were giving away, like they just stumbled into just this this glut of of literal land. We, you know, right? It's practically well, I mean, infinite like, for our lifetime. I've, I've never and been to Britain, but I've got like a decent idea of the yeah. size of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, to compare just the land of Britain to the land of the Americas yeah. at that point. <clears throat> I'm just I'm very curious at the measurement of. There, there's like obviously like, yeah they controlled all of the barrel production from blah, 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 blah. okay like I get that but if land is part of it is it I don't think we can think of it like we do now where you know you could look at a tract of land and have a pretty good idea what it's worth because then it's like maybe like you don't even know what you can do with it you can't yeah, fly yeah, a drone yeah. over and see and like topographically like map it out um, you don't know what's, what's underneath what kind of Rocks, minerals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are yeah. in there to mine or out. Or maybe what even is, is even over the next the next hill crest. Yeah, but at the same time, like to think about um, the cotton industry and the tobacco industry that were yeah. happening in the Americas. That um, and I don't know that much, but like, however much cotton we could grow um, in the land that existed at this point mm-hmm. had to be more than what Britain was able to grow. Yeah. Just due to amount of land. Well, even that, like those cotton fields are valuable, but to turn land, just wilderness land, whatever is there, whether it's timber or grassland or prairie or whatever, into farmland, that takes work. Even today, yeah, know, timberland is significantly less expensive than actual farm field land because of the development it takes to turn it into something that can produce a resource year after year. Um, ah, I just... 
No answer there. Enjoy that tangent. <laughs> I just curious about it. Okay, but what what specifically sparks your curiosity on the land thing? Um, maybe that there's uh, that <clears throat> that it would be unfair to point at a um, uh, a lord that was you know is granted a, a million acres of land and go wow. He was just given so many, uh, like so much money effectively, which is kind of how we would think of it today. Like if you get, if you win in a lottery, a hundred thousand acres of land, you could turn around and sell it immediately. Well, not immediately, but you could sell it very quickly and you could immediately turn it into money that is fungible and can be used for whatever you want. At this time, I don't know if it had necessarily that value. Here's a million acres. It's not connected to any roads. There's no ports. There's no farm fields on it. Go nuts. Find a stream. Have somebody build you a log cabin. See what you can turn it into. Okay, so this is what I would say. If uh, if you gave me a large chunk of land, let's mm-hmm. say like up in Canada, yeah. it was just wild. And I was like, ah, nah. I sold it. And then I could live just wherever I wanted yeah. in America or around the world for probably a number of years after selling that land because I had money. I could do anything I want with it. Now, going to the metaphor, we've used a couple times of like America is like an unexplored planet. Mm-hmm. Like you get here, you're stuck here. There yeah. is no going anywhere. <clears throat> you can't just now like use this money to travel wherever you want because yeah, there aren't there aren't roads. Mm-hmm. But you do now have a space that's yours where you can hire people on. Yep. And slowly work it into something. Yeah, and I don't want to argue. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying it's not valuable, but it it's significantly more speculative. It is a, there, there's more risk. You don't know what you have yet. You have to make something of it. You and you and your people. Um, I don't know. I think that's. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to say is like for the person who is in America that has yet to be granted land, but could get, get granted land. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're already at such a higher risk level because they're in America. Yeah. They're on the new planet mm-hmm. that to be granted a large plot of land. Yes, there is risk. But they're already in so much risk. Yeah, that's fair. That this little bit that gets added on is way more of a benefit than a... And since everything is relative, they have land that they can go poke around and see what's there and maybe sell the resources that are there, whereas people who don't, like they don't even have that, that option. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I like the economics of this stuff. I'm interested in the, the actual, like the... I don't know how how wealth moved at this time. Yeah, and that's an interest of of, of you in like real life with with most things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so now let's turn to the black population in America. Quote: The situation of black slaves as a result of the American Revolution was more complex. Thousands of blacks fought with the British. Five thousand were with the revolutionaries. Most of them from the north, but there were also free blacks from Virginia and Maryland. The lower South was reluctant to arm blacks. Amid the urgency and chaos of war, thousands took their freedom, leaving on British ships at the end of the war to settle in England, Nova Scotia, the West Indies, or Africa. Many others stayed in America as free blacks, evading their masters. In the northern states, the combination of blacks in the military, the lack of powerful economic need for slaves, and the rhetoric of revolution led to the end of slavery, but very slowly. What the revolution did was to create space and opportunity for blacks to begin making demands of white society. Sometimes these demands came from the new small black elites in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Richmond, Savannah, sometimes from articulate and bold slaves. 
pointing to the Declaration of Independence, blacks petitioned Congress and the state legislatures to abolish slavery to give blacks equal rights. In 1780, seven blacks in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, petitioned the legislature for the right to vote, linking taxation to representation. Quote, within a quote, we apprehend ourselves to be aggrieved in that while we are not allowed the privilege of free men of the state having no vote or influence in the election of those that tax us, yet many of our color, as is well known, have cheerfully entered the field of battle in the defense of the common cause, and that, as we conceive, against a similar exertion of power in regard to taxation, too well known to need a recital in this place. End quote. This is part of what we spoke about last week, that I believe the language of the Declaration of Independence um, and the and principles such as no taxation without representation, they could be pointed to by any disaffected group, the blacks and the black slaves of this time, as proof that America, even in its infancy, was not living up to her own ideals that had been penned. And I'm skeptical that the founding fathers were too dumb to know that that, could be, that, that would happen. When we were talking about writing too broadly, I think, I think, I don't know, maybe it was subconscious, maybe whatever, maybe they truly believe that we the people only meant this specific class of upper and middle class working white landowning men. But to write so broadly that it can be seized upon by these oppressed groups that you are supposedly keeping down, um, I, I don't know, I, I think it's intentional. So I guess my response to that is like, I think that the taxation without representation argument made by the founding fathers was a super smart argument. Um, however, then to like have the intelligence to make this really good argument and then not actually implement it across the board mm -hmm. to me is like blatant hypocrisy to where it's like, we want representation. Yeah. And then they like turn around and go, well, you guys, we're going to tax you, but you don't get representation. Well, and I think it's important to note that I am agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that blatant hypocrisy, that the, the levers to undo that were intentionally built in. Ooh. That it had to like, we, we just had to get this document done and start a revolution, right? That was the goal. We can't unwind everything right now. Jefferson conflicted over slave ownership uh, his whole life, but never gave up his ownership of slaves. Guys like that, that they 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 could see better. They could see being better in the future. I agree just with can't that. can't get here now. I agree that they could see being better. Yes, mm -hmm. definitely. Building the levers in, I think, is a very different argument. Well, and that's where, you know, next week when we start diving more into the Constitution that I could be smacked across the face with how wrong I am. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I want to hit one thing, and then we got to talk about Benjamin Banneker because this dude's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, finding out that in 1780, there's a upper class of free blacks. What the hell have I been doing with my life? Like, 
<laughs> becoming upper class. And what was the actual um, the small black elites in Baltimore, Philadelphia, elites. Richmond, Savannah? Yeah, that in a time period where like talk about having everything against you, and they're still able to rise into some elite status. Like, geez. Well, the the Baltimore, Philadelphia, like that's the north. But then you go like Richmond, we're in Virginia and Savannah. Now we're in Georgia. Yeah. I like, I, yeah, I'd be curious what that looked like. Like, how did that function in Savannah, Georgia, but like pretty deep in the south? How did it even, it just, how did it even, it even happen? Who are these people? I what that's um, from the, the picture that we've been viewing that Zinn has been painting. Like, whew, that's incredible. Well, he says, so like uh, blacks in the military. So it's yep. possible, you know, they went into the military having very little. Yep. Came out having some, but enough to then um, invest, maybe not literally invest, but like to use that money and to then grow that money somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And then be wise with it. And, you know, you had some people who were, who were good with money. And well, I think the thing to take away from this is uh, j- just like the optimism of, of, of being alive, of having another day in front of you, that it doesn't matter how bad things seem um, in your in your life right now, what forces you think are holding you back. Like, you can do better. Yeah, the, the, the fact that there were blacks post-revolution who became elites yeah. in a world where just about everything was against them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay, so so uh, hit hit uh, Benji Banneker. No, go go ahead. Go ahead. I don't have the quote. Yeah, you do. Benji, it's, at the, it's at the end of your. Oh, is that the end of the next one? one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you were reading ahead over here. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you wanted to talk about it right now. Okay, yeah. So let's do this next quote then. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about Jefferson, and we'll get to um, Benjamin Banneker. Um, quote. A black man, Benjamin Banneker, who taught himself mathematics and astronomy, predicted accurately a solar eclipse and was appointed to plan the new city of Washington, wrote to Thomas Jefferson. I suppose it is a truth too well attested to you to need a proof here, that we are a race of beings who have long labored under the abuse and censure of the world, that we have long been looked upon with an eye of contempt, and that we have long been considered rather as brutish than human, and scarcely capable of mental endowments. I apprehend you will embrace every opportunity to eradicate that train of absurd and false ideas and opinions which so generally prevails with respect to us, and that your sentiments are concurrent with mine, which are that one universal Father hath given being to us all, and that he hath not only made us all of one flesh, but that he hath also without partiality afforded us all the same sensations and endowed us all with the same facilities. Banneker asked Jefferson to wean yourselves from those narrow prejudices which you have imbibed. Jefferson tried his best, as an enlightened, thoughtful individual might, but the structure of American society the power of the cotton plantation, the slave trade, the politics of unity between northern and southern elites, and the long culture of race prejudice in the colonies, as well as his own weaknesses, that combination of practical need and ideological fixation kept Jefferson a slave owner throughout his life. End quote. I believe. We, we, we talk about um, in, in, in our life or when reviewing history or just in... Uh, Throughout in, in pop culture, or whatever th- this 
motif of the American story, right? What I realized reading uh, the, the bit on Benjamin Banneker in here, right? Yeah. That is the American story right there. And you know, we never referenced the founding fathers as an example of the American story. So they're great men. And, may, and maybe we do. Uh, I don't know. I was, I've never thought of them that way. Great men that founded this nation. Wait, before going any further, can we define the American story? Are you very saying fair, like very fair. the American dream as in essentially it's like a rags to riches story? Yeah, exactly. Benjamin Banneker looked around and was like, this is shit. And he taught himself math. I and bet astronomy. I could make the solar eclipse. <laughs> yeah, predict and plan the city of Washington. And I don't know what Washington we're talking about here. I was yeah. curious. I, I well, it definitely isn't the one on the on the West Coast that they didn't know about yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I don't know what Washington it is. Sure, I sure. wanted to look it up, but I never I didn't. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, the the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality that, um, if you want it, you can go get it. I'd be forced to learn mathematics and it's something that I'm actually used quite regularly, but he did it on his own. Um, that's, that is, is, uh, yeah. An example of, of the true, like the kind of like the promise of America. So still okay. in its infancy. So let me ask you this question. Yeah. Um, that narrative, the pull you up by your bootstraps, I, I like it. Yeah. Um, but I I don't think I would want that applied to every person. I would say there's people out there that can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Partially because I think that, like, that narrative like requires a type A personality. Well, I, I still think we need to be cautious that we, I don't think it's assumed that pull yourself up by your own bootstraps meant you did it a thousand percent by yourself. That like nobody sure. ever helped you, right? That that's just kind of generally understood that wherever you end up in life, um, if you're better off than where you started and you had successes, that along the way you met someone who, um, who who taught you something. You got a little lucky. You made the right choices at the right time. Um, you found someone who could assist you in certain ways that could help help you go farther, right? So, um, but it is. I think the reference is mainly kind of at the, at that inception, at, at the, the initiation of your journey. You have to choose to take the first step. You have to choose to teach yourself mathematics and astronomy and other people can help you, but and you, you have to make the choice every day to, to be better. So, so let me ask you this then. Um, is it, is it unfair for somebody to say like, Wow, but like, why can't we just live in a world where like everyone gets taught math? Mm. Unfair. Uh, it's not unfair to say that. I I think it's um, butterfly wings and fairy dust. So yeah, you don't think that's realistic? No, like you could try to teach people all you want. Sure. If they don't want to do it, if if they don't want to take it in, if they're more interested in something else, it doesn't matter what you're trying even if it's not mathematics, even if it's something that people actually enjoy, generally speaking, if they don't want to do it, it's not going to be done. 
or it'll or or they'll take in the information at such like a base level like me with history in <laughs> before before now uh that it's not gonna stick and it's not gonna affect them in any way it's not gonna like mold them moving forward sure no it's interesting um okay you got a note here about the nail factory oh <laughs> I, they always leave out the nail factory. This is a Jefferson thing. Yeah, apparently that was uh, is he had a nail production facility on his estate, Monticello, that was one of the most profitable portions of his holdings. Because apparently he was a, he was a shit farmer. Like he was not good at farming, but he was really good at making nails. Well, he didn't. I don't think he actually did any of it. He mainly just rode rode around on his horse. Yeah, and yeah. like probably just pointed, like pull that weed. Yeah, sharpen that nail. Yeah, nail production went went well for him. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Um, I did want to comment that like um, I liked when when Zinn's talking about Jefferson here. Um, I I just I kind of really liked his final paragraph here. It says Jefferson tried his best as an enlightened, thoughtful individual might. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he like again talks about sort of this like historical racism view, mm-hmm. where he lays out like the structure of American society, the power of the cotton plantation, the slave trade. The politics of unity between northern and southern elites, the long culture of race prejudice in the colonies, and also just like his own, like he was a human with some personal weaknesses. Um, to say that, like, yeah, it's not like Jefferson was a white guy, and so therefore he just automatically hated black people. What? Yeah, and what if the what if Jefferson and Banneker are an example of Jefferson, good for his time, Banneker? good for all time and we don't know we definitely don't know as probably don't know as much about banneker as we do about jefferson yeah Uh, yeah. who knows how much writing we have and and what he got into and whatnot but yeah the um the character of jefferson i think i would definitely argue he was kind of like doing the best he could for his time as a man of his time the character of banneker is somebody that is good for all time yeah, I mean, until we learned more about him and learned that everyone has flaws and yeah. everybody tries hard and not everybody tries hard, but everyone has flaws. And that's the thing. It's like, well, no, absolutely. Everybody has flaws, but but there are there are people in history that even for their time, they were not going along with, you know, what would today be considered yeah. like not great or reprehensible. Uh, if If listeners, if you thought I referred to slavery as not great. It is reprehensible. That's <laughs> what I actually mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. So next week we'll be discussing um, part two of the, of the chapter. We'll be talking all about the Constitution. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, there's some people out there that want to abolish it. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's talk about it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Zinn... Will 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 help crystallize their argument for me, in, in a way like maybe I'll actually understand the 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 throw it in the trash and and start over argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll see. Um, well, we'll we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah we'll we'll definitely. get there. We'll uh, get there. But yeah, thanks everyone for coming out. Um, if you are enjoying these episodes uh, and have comments or criticisms or or if you want to make an argument that the this podcast should be abolished, like I'll I'll take a listen. I'll consider like yeah, I'll consider. 
burning the whole thing down. Absolutely. Just email us. Yeah. Uh, put, put put my name in the subject line for that one because <laughs> I'm the guy to, to tear the whole thing down. Yeah. I'll, I'll be the one. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan has always been on team tear it down. Uh, so uh, email us at the Dedalus workshop at gmail.com. That's the D-A-E-D-A-L-U-S workshop at gmail.com. Thanks for coming out. Cheers.